welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 110. My name is Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. Well, this week I've been playing Overwatch 2, the new iteration on Overwatch from Blizzard. I've also been diving deep into the nostalgia zone with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles The Cowbunga Collection, plus checking out a brand new point-and-click adventure game in the excavation of Hobbs Barrow. CD Projekt Red also announced some very, very ambitious plans this week regarding new Witcher and Cyberpunk sequels. So it's a busy show, so let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you're well and you're having a good week. Yeah, I'm good this week, and this week Overwatch 2 launched. Well, kind of. You know, It has been a rocky launch from Blizzard, given the DDoS attacks and the move to free-to-play and also the phone number issues as well that many players have had. But I did manage to get a few hours into the game this week, so I'm going to bring you my review of Overwatch 2 later on in the show. Well, CD Projekt Red were back this week and announced loads of new games, which seems highly ambitious, and some might say over-promising, given how long it took to develop Cyberpunk 2077, only for that to release in a very undercooked and subpar state. Well, we're going to have to wait and see what happens, but their roadmap really, really does look good if they can pull it off. Well, Nintendo unveiled their first trailer for the Mario movie this week, with Mario's voice sounding very much like every other Chris Pratt voice he's ever done, rather than something unique for Mario. However, the trailer did look very, very cool, and it had Bowser attacking a frozen penguin castle, and it looks like the folks over there at Illumination have done a very, very good job. So I look forward to that coming out next April. Well, Sony also announced a potential remake of Horizon Forbidden West this week, which does seem quite unnecessary. You know, it appears as if they're laying the groundwork for the TV show to come out, following on from the success of The Witcher and Cyberpunk's Edge Runners, both appearing on Netflix, then causing a bump in sales and playtime off the back of the release of those series. So Sony, they're definitely making some interesting decisions when it comes to remaking games, although personally, I really, really enjoyed The Last of Us Part 1. Well, before we get stuck into it today, it'd be great if you could leave a review over there on Apple Podcasts. really helps the podcast get some more eyes on it. Now, I do have a link in the podcast description, so if you like the show and you want to leave a review, I'd really, really appreciate it. Plus, I'll read out a review on a future episode of the podcast. Also, if you want to support the show further, check out This Week in Video Games on Patreon, and you can check out all those Patreon benefits. Okay, that is my waffly intro out of the way, so let's check out what I've been playing this week. Well, this week I've been playing Overwatch 2 when I could get on. You know, I've been playing it early in the mornings here in the UK to avoid the North American queues, and that really seems to have helped. So I managed to get somewhere between 5 and 10 hours into the game this week, and so far, so good. You know, I wasn't a huge Overwatch player from the first game, but I know enough to be able to jump in and have a good time. I'm going to bring my review of that first up in the show. I've also been playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles The Cowabunga Collection, and that is a collection of 13 Turtles games, including arcade classics, SNES, NES, Game Boy, Mega Drive games, and loads of digital memorabilia. Now, it's probably the greatest package that Konami have released in some time. I'm going to bring you my thoughts of that later on in the show. Well, I've also been playing a bunch of Destiny 2, which I always do. I am starting to feel the burnout slightly with the game, so I thought I'd stop and take a look at some of the issues that Bungie has with Destiny 2 right now. These waves do tend to come and go, but I know I'm not the only one feeling the burnout in the community at the moment. 
Finally, I've been playing the excavation of Hobbs Barrow, and while many have been playing the return to Monkey Island, you know, something which I haven't yet played but it's on the backlog, I've been playing the latest point-and-click adventure game from Wadget Eye Games, with this gothic horror story set in Northern England. That's good fun, it's creepy, and I'm going to bring you my review later on in the show. Well, without further delay, let's dive into Overwatch 2. Overwatch 2 released this week after a couple of successful beta tests earlier in the year, plus the original Overwatch has been sunset. You know, this one is an iterative change rather than a huge redesign for Overwatch, which was considered many people's game of the year back in 2016. Yeah, much has changed in the looter landscape since then with the emergence of high-quality free-to-play games, season passes and battle royale. So can Overwatch 2 stay competitive in today's environment? Well, let's find out. Overwatch 2 has been released replacing the original Overwatch 1 and minus the promised PvE mode back at the unveiling of the sequel. It's much more of an iterative change than the complete redesign, which is probably a good thing, given Overwatch had massive success. And it was one of the breakout hits of 2016, and until that content dried up, it did enjoy a few good years of being the major player in online shooters. It may look the same and feel similar, but dig under the surface, and you are going to find a good amount of changes that freshen up the Overwatch franchise. At the core, Overwatch 2 is still a hero-based shooter, it's big, it's colourful, with fluid-feeling shooting mechanics and great character interactions. Now, at launch, we've got 35 characters to play with, they are all very different, they've got their own unique personalities and arsenal to master. So Overwatch 2 still feels great, and not much has changed around this core concept. You know, the fact that it feels good probably means fans are willing to put up with some of the changes surrounding the core gameplay mechanic. You know, the team-focused objective gameplay is what made Overwatch stand out from the crowd. However, innovations in other areas of the shooter genre were lurking just around the corner of 2016. One of the major changes to Overwatch now is it's free-to-play, and therefore comes with all the add-ons that a free-to-play shooter has. So we've got a season pass, the online store, and the grind for new characters and cosmetics. So there are plenty of benefits to a free-to-play model. For example, this is going to help get players in. Previously, the game was like $40 or £40, but since then, the market has moved on, with some of the biggest games in the world now free-to-play. So Fortnite, Call of Duty Warzone, Destiny 2 even though it's probably more free to try. And you've also got Halo Infinite as well. You can jump into these games and play for free. Destiny 2 is probably a little limited in what you can play for free, but you can still jump in and have an arena-based shooter experience. Now, all of these games have battle passes or season passes, all have microtransaction stores filled with cosmetics and sometimes even more. So it does make sense for Overwatch to do this in this day and age, you know, putting the game behind a paywall immediately puts the game at a disadvantage in a very, very crowded market. The introduction of a free-to-play model is a big change for Overwatch, but it doesn't really affect the gameplay. The biggest change to gameplay for Overwatch 2 has been the move to 5 versus 5 compared to 6 versus 6 previously. You know, while this only represents a small change to the roster of an individual match, so going from 12 players on the field to 10, this is a big shift and has far-reaching repercussions for teams. Some long-standing Overwatch teams who used to be made up of six players now have to move to five, meaning one player is going to miss out. More importantly, this has an impact on the match dynamics and focus, as well as the gameplay rhythm. 
and it does emphasise more individual play rather than team play, which had been the major focus of Overwatch previously. Well, teams are now made up of two DPS, one tank, and two support characters. This means fewer tanks in matches. So, in the original Overwatch, Winston and Reinhardt were probably the most popular tanks on the field, and this change is hopefully going to even things up when it comes to tank selection. It creates an interesting situation where teams only have five players, you know, given the tank has to try and be at the point of the vanguard and also attack or drive forward the objective. But then they've got to be soaking up the damage from the rear as well. It means a split role and an increased amount of responsibility for tanks, whereas this role was taken up by two players before. So on the positive side, this does mean more exciting matches. On the negative side, it probably means more popular tanks are being used more often, meaning less variation. I don't know about you in the opening week of Overwatch 2, but I think I've seen loads and loads of Reinhardt. And that might be because we're down to only one tank. Well, originally, when Overwatch 2 was unveiled, the PvE component was going to be a huge part of the package. With that gone, there needs to be a material change in the Overwatch 2 experience, and the team composition represents a meaningful change to the game. It's something which has shaken up the meta and also refreshed the gameplay. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. It is a huge gamble. Games are exciting, but that relative loss of team-focused play and its impact is probably not yet known. Given team play was one of the differentiators from Overwatch 1, the seeming lack of this in a sequel is quite a risky decision from Blizzard. Given this team composition rebalancing into 5 versus 5, loads of heroes have been reworked, so Orisa probably represents one of the biggest changes to a hero in the game at the minute. While she used to be an anchor to the team, she's now much more mobile and able to dish out the damage effectively. She's got a javelin spin, where most damage is caused by charging towards opponents, this is wildly different from how Arissa used to play, given she sat back and allowed other players to use her as a defensive shield. Arissa's defensive net or shields have been removed, and other defensive shields have been removed as well. So there's been a massive reduction in the number of shields that can be deployed by players, which opens up the gameplay very, very nicely indeed. As well as the character reworks, there's also new heroes been added too, and one new character in each class, bringing up the full roster to 35 at launch. So we've got Sojourn is the new damage hero, is a rapid fire machine gun, and also offers something slightly different to Soldier 76. We've got Kiriko, she is a fast and nimble healer, able to quickly dash in and out of combat and deal damage with her ninja stars. Junker Queen, on the other hand, is a new tank hero. She's very effective when it comes to being aggressive on the field. She's got an axe, a knife, and a shotgun. So all the new characters, they're very well designed and have the personality you'd expect from an Overwatch character. We've also got a new gameplay mode too with Push. We've got to move a robotic vehicle to a location, so the robot spawns roughly in the middle. Each team have to push the objective into the opposing team's spawn to get the winner. So it's quite similar to Escort mode, but rather than constantly attacking or defending, you're constantly trying to get the payload to the other side. Similar to a real-life tug-of-war, it gives both teams a focus, and the momentum can shift and change as the match goes on. It's good fun, and I really, really think it has a bunch of potential. So Push is a new addition, but things have been removed as well. So loot boxes have been removed. I think the game is going to be all the better for it. You know, loot boxes have been replaced with a season pass, much like we see in other free-to-play games. The season pass costs around £10 or about a 1,000 Overwatch coins, and that probably equates to about $10 as well. So each season is nine weeks long, and we've got tiers to climb to unlock various cosmetics. So you've got all new voice lines, clothing, colour variations, and it all feels very familiar when it comes to other games like this, like Fortnite, 
Rumbleverse, Fall Guys, and Multiverses. Each new season, we're going to get a new hero, a new map, or maybe both. Blizzard's got some big plans for the season model with new characters, maps, and even new modes coming. So hopefully they've learned from the first game and the content won't go through a massive drought as we saw with Overwatch 1, which ultimately led to the decline in the player base of the first game. Given now it's free to play and Blizzard has a steady stream of features ready to go or coming down the pipeline, hopefully this isn't going to happen again, at least in the short term. The Battle Pass is very interesting and offers up some incentives to play for in terms of premium Battle Pass owners. So on the free track, you're going to get rewards on 20 of the levels, or basically every four tiers. And if you're a new player and go for the free track, then you're going to unlock Kiriko at level 55, and the new heroes in the same way in future seasons. So level 55, you are going to have to play quite a long time. New players also have a limited number of heroes to play with when they start. I think it's 13. However, if you owned Overwatch 1, then you're going to start with all 35. So everyone who logs in during Season 1 are going to have access to Sojourn and Junker Queen. While the PvE mode didn't make the cut for launch, it is due in 2023, so that is going to be story-heavy filled with Overwatch lore and has the potential to really set it apart from other shooters. Now, Destiny 2 has been doing really, really good story content for a couple of years now, so if they can get anywhere near that level of storytelling, I will be a happy customer. I can't finish up this review without mentioning the launch, which has been close to an absolute disaster for Blizzard. So shortly after launch, Blizzard has been suffering massive DDoS attacks, huge queues of players, meaning players either can't get in or they're being thrown out of matches having to wait hours to get in in the first place. You know, while it's not new for online multiplayer games to have rocky launches like this, this is probably the worst I've ever experienced. So I've been avoiding the queues so far, playing when North America is asleep, you know, that's early here in the morning in the UK, but I've seen screenshots of queues in the tens of thousands and clips of people being thrown out of matches due to errors. I tried to play on Thursday or Friday night, so after having to wait to play the game for an hour, I then got thrown out of about three matches in a row halfway through the game, and really, that was it for me, you know. It must be hugely disappointing for Blizzard and players alike, and hopefully this is going to get fixed really, really soon. Overall though, Overwatch 2 is a lot of fun. It may be missing its long-awaited PvE mode at launch. It's also added enough changes to the game to help it feel fresh. The 5v5 mode mixes up the gameplay and the new push mode is a lot of fun. The new heroes are excellent and some of the changes to existing characters are really interesting. But we'll have to wait and see and play it more to see how it all pans out. There's potential in here for Blizzard to have a massive hit once again on their hands if they can play the seasonal content model right. But right now, it's fun, it's colourful, it's a team-focused first-person shooter, and if you're a fan of the genre, it's definitely something you should try out. Well, the game is developed by Blizzard, it is published by Blizzard, it's available on the PlayStation 4, 5, Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, the Series X, the Series S, and also PC as well, and the original release was the 4th of October, 2022. Well, that is it for my review of Overwatch 2. Definitely recommend jumping in if you can. I know Blizzard have been doing a lot of good work this week, fixing bugs, getting those queues down. But hopefully, as we go into early next week, things are going to calm down a bit and you're going to be able to get a game nice and easy. Well, that is it for my review of Overwatch 2 for now. But next up, let's have a look at the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Cowabunga Collection. Twenty twenty two has been a big year for our heroes in a half shell. 
First of all, we got Shredder's Revenge, and then Konami decided to release the ultimate package for Turtles fans, with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles The Cowabunga Collection. This is a collection of NES, SNES, Mega Drive and Game Boy games, plus loads of instruction manuals and supporting information, music and artwork. And if you're a fan of the Turtles or scrolling beat-em-ups, this is a collection not to be missed. Well, Konami hasn't really been on their A-game in the video game space for some time, but this is probably the best thing they've put out in years. Back in the 80s and the 90s, Konami's arcade games were legendary, with X-Men, The Simpsons, Gradius, and of course, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This collection is most likely going to cater for the nostalgic audience, those of us who lived through the 80s and the 90s playing games. And as soon as you boot up the game, you get a nice animated Turtles intro, then you can dive into the collector's items, which include comic covers, music playlists for all the games, shots of the animated TV series, game manuals, and also, really impressively, loads of design documents from the original game. The sheer amount of stuff in here is pretty staggering, and a must-have for any Turtles fan. Well, let's get into the games. We've got 13 games in total in the collection, which are made available in their North American and their Japanese versions. Now, even the game selection menu has gloss. You know, it's a very nice comic book style selection screen showing you, you know, what the game is before you play it. One of the killer features is related to the video mode where you can choose to watch the games being played and then at any moment you can dive into the action and pick up where the watch mode has got to. So that's really, really impressive stuff. As well as the presentation, there's various modes, including online co-op. Now, and Konami have implemented rollback netcode for a seamless online experience. This is especially good when it comes to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles tournament fighters from the SNES. Each game has its various enhancements or old-school cheats like invincibility, turbo stage selection, and also other modes too. Well, let's have a look at the full game list then in the Cowabunga collection. So we've got the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade game. We've got Turtles in Time, the arcade game. We've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES. Turtles 2, the arcade game, also on the NES. Turtles 3, the Manhattan Project, also on the NES and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Tournament Fighters, also on the NES. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time, that is on the Super Nintendo. We've got Tournament Fighters on the Super Nintendo. We've got the Hyperstone Heist on Sega Genesis, Tournament Fighters on Sega Genesis, Fall of the Foot Clan on the Game Boy, Back from the Sewers on the Game Boy, finally, Radical Rescue, that one is also on the Game Boy. So going back to that original arcade game, it's not the best in terms of gameplay, but the nostalgia here is strongest for me. The gameplay is fairly simplistic, but that opening scene where you have to save April O'Neil from a burning building, well, that just gets me every time. Well, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time Arcade is up next, and mechanically, this one is much better, introducing features like throwing opponents into the screen and the ability to tie up enemies with attacks, plus slightly more sophisticated jump attacks. The story is also richer here as well, as the four turtles travel through time, beating up the Foot Clan as they go. Well, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES is next, and this one was tough. You know, this has the infamous overground section, the top-down map, plus you switch between turtles rather than select who you want to play as. I distinctly remember getting this one on the NES when I was a kid, and being disappointed as it wasn't like the arcade game, but we would have to wait a little bit for that. Talking of which, Turtles 2, the arcade game on the NES. Now, this was the game I originally wanted the first time round, albeit with worse graphics than the true arcade version. My little kid brain at the time didn't really understand why there was a difference, 
But looking back, it is a miracle the developers managed to get anything like the original arcade game working on an 8-bit console. Well, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, the Manhattan Project on the NES, is another scrolling beat-em-up with new bosses and improvement to the graphics of the previous game. I missed this one when I was younger, so it was good to go back and play it. It wasn't as engaging as the others, but that could be due to me not having nostalgia for it. Well, Turtles 4, Turtles in Time on the Super Nintendo, well, that is one of the best SNES games I remember from my collection. And also, it's a very close port to the arcade version, implementing the Mode 7 graphics back in the day for the screen-throwing technique. Bebop, Rocksteady and Super Shredder were also added to the port, which makes sense from a marketing point of view, but not really so much for the story. This was a great SNES game, but I do prefer Turtles in Time, the arcade version, which had much more of a Neo Geo feel to it. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles The Hyperstone Heist, that's on the Sega Mega Drive, it's a similar game to Turtles in Time, albeit a little bit shorter, though it does have the new stages and bosses, and it takes inspiration and assets from the arcade version. So it is a mashup in all senses of the word, you can't really throw enemies into the screen on this one, which is one of the big features the game introduced, so that is a thumbs down from me, but again, I was a Nintendo kid. Well, next up, we got Fall of the Foot Clan on the Game Boy, and that's the first Game Boy game in the collection. And it is impressive what they did on such a limited system. It's a scrolling beat em up, but it feels very much like first generation Game Boy game. Then we've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 back from the sewers. That feels even worse, to be honest, which is odd because it's a sequel, although it does add different types of levels like skateboarding and like emulating Turtles in Time, and also the more recent Shredder's Revenge. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 Radical Rescue, that is much more of a maze-like game where you have to save your fellow turtles, as a completely different experience from the other games. You know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Tournament Fighters on the Super Nintendo, that one is a Street Fighter 2 clone, and was looking to cash in on the popularity of the turtles, as well as the fighting game genre back then. So in 1992 and 1993, fighting games were some of the biggest games on the market, like Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat, and tournament fighters try to muscle in on the action. You know, each character has a bunch of special moves, and it plays how you'd want this sort of game to play. It's also really, really hard. You know, there's also Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles tournament fighters on the Sega Mega Drive. That isn't so good, and that version chugs along rather than the smooth nature of the SNES game. Then we've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles tournament fighters on the NES. That one really shouldn't be on an 8-bit system, so while it's possible to do it, that doesn't mean you should do it. You know, it would be good fun if nothing else was available, but unfortunately for this game, there's 12 other options. It's not for me, but I'm sure someone could appreciate it. Overall, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles The Cowabunga Collection is the ultimate collection of TMNT games. You know, I thought having Shredder's Revenge released this year was a treat, but this collection is almost unbelievable as a Turtles fan. I played roughly half of these games back in the day when I was a kid, mainly the scrolling beat-em-ups either on the NES, the SNES, the Game Boy or the Arcade. I didn't really play the fighting game clones, so it was good to check those out. So as well as the games, you've got all the music, the artwork, the manuals and more. So Konami really has outdone itself, and I haven't said that for many years. In terms of this package, I 100% recommend it. Well, the game was developed by Digital Eclipse. It was published by Konami. It's available on Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, PC, Xbox Series S and X, also the PlayStation 5. Originally, it was released on the 30th of August 2022. I'd really like to thank the publisher for offering a review copy of the game. 
Well, that is it for now for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Cowabunga Collection. Really, really good stuff. And you want to dive into nostalgia. This is the perfect way to do it with a Heroes in a Half Shell. Well, that is it for now for the Cowabunga Collection. But next up, let's have a look at all the new Witcher and Cyberpunk games announced by CD Projekt Red. Well, I'm going to dive over to Polygon for this one with some help by Ollie Welsh. This was a fantastic article that Ollie wrote last week. And it's titled, Why Did CD Projekt Just Announce Six New Games? And what the next 10 years of The Witcher and Cyberpunk means for CD Projekt Red. In a long-term strategy update on Tuesday, CD Projekt laid out an extremely ambitious development plan stretching far into the future and included confirmation of no less than six new games in addition to the new Witcher game it had already discussed. Two further Witcher sequels, two Witcher spin-offs, and a sequel to Cyberpunk 2077, plus the creation of an entirely original third series, currently in the early conceptual stages. CD Projekt wisely put no firm timeline on any of this, but from what the studio said, it's possible to put these projects in a rough release order and to explain where the resources to make them will come from. In the near future, CD Projekt Red, the company's main studio, comprising of three development hubs in Poland, remains focused on finishing a PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X version of The Witcher due this year and the Phantom Liberty expansion to Cyberpunk 2077 due in 2023. After that, the next three games in development pipeline all belong to The Witcher franchise and two are in pre-production. The first is called Sirius the codename for a single and multiplayer game made by the Boston studio The Molasses Flood, which CD Projekt acquired last year and which made co-op survival game Drake Hollow. Also in pre-production is Polaris, the first game in the new Witcher saga made by the core CD Projekt Red team. And next up is most likely Canis Majoris, a full-fledged Witcher game but separate from the new saga and made by an external studio. Beyond this trio, CD Projekt Red explains to follow Polaris with two sequels in the space of just six years. Meanwhile, Orion, the next game in the cyberpunk universe, will be made by a new CD Projekt Red studio in Boston, as well as the CD Projekt Red Vancouver, formerly Digital Scapes, another recent acquisition. Hadar is the new IP, and it's a more distant prospect, and CD Projekt Red is working on the setting, hasn't begun any kind of actual game development. You know, there's at least a decade's worth of new game releases here, and it's very rare for any publisher or developer to say out its plans so far in advance. It also represents a radical expansion for a company that until this year only worked on one major project at a time and took its time about it. You know, The Witcher 3 and Cyberpunk 2077 were in production for four to five years apiece. Now, CD Projekt has talked about managing two to three projects at internal studios simultaneously, plus working on an external studio for the first time on anything bigger than a mobile game. It is, in short, an extremely aggressive plan, and revealing it in full is a surprising, almost unprecedented PR move. So the question to ask is, what is going on here? Well, one reason CD Projekt's motivation is hard to pass is there's so much going on in its messaging, in addition to announcing its huge production slate across a 15-minute strategy video, an investor call, a presentation document, and several further deep-dive videos on marketing, culture, and technology, CG Project seems to anxiously talk about a range of topics, including expanding into multiplayer gaming, 
while retaining a focus on single-player experiences, transitioning from its own technology to Epic's Unreal Engine 5, expanding further into film, TV and mobile gaming, promoting a healthy and sustainable working culture across its group of studios, improving both the quantity and the quality of its product, all this and announcing its change to Leadership 2, with joint CEO Marcin Iwinski moving back to a non-executive position as chairman of the board. Well, there's no doubt this company and its investors were shaken by the response to Cyberpunk 2077, which launched in late 2020 in such a rough state that PlayStation took the extreme step of withdrawing its PlayStation 4 version from sale. Earlier this year, it was reported that CG Projekt's stock price had slumped to a quarter of its value before the game's release, with sales of Cyberpunk 2077 now hitting 20 million. Helped along by the success of a new Netflix anime Cyberpunk Edge Runners, CG Projekt is not struggling financially, but it's certainly going to be keen to rebuild its confidence in its ability to make games and drive up that stock price. The repeated insistence on game quality, the extensive discussion on how Unreal Engine 5 will streamline the development process, and the stress placed on growing network of internal and external studios, all seem to design to offer post-cyberpunk reassurance. But the extent of the announced plan goes so far beyond that, and so far beyond CD Projekt's capacity to deliver thus far, according to its track record, that it seems the company has a loftier goal here than just reassuring everybody that its next games won't be buggy messes. Overall, the presentation seems bent on changing the very conception of the kind of company that CG Projekt is. So since The Witcher 3, CD Projekt has projected an image similar to that of Rockstar Games, a top-flight developer moving at a deliberate pace from one mega-blockbuster to the next. This new vision of the company working across three properties and three or more projects simultaneously is quite different. The explosion of activity around The Witcher in particular suggests a way a publisher like Ubisoft seeks to exploit the likes of Assassin's Creed with a continuous stream of new games, and coincidentally, Ubisoft made its own raft of more or less nebulous Assassin's Creed announcements recently, but perhaps Blizzard is a closer comparison, an entity halfway between a publisher and a mega-studio, with multiple internal teams working on a handful of cherished properties. Well, this seems to be the image that CD Projekt now wants to project. The last question is, to whom is projecting that? You know, one credible answer is prospective employees. Some of the videos came across like an extended recruitment ad, and the company certainly has a lot of staffing up to do. Another theory might be that CG Project is showing its wares to present itself as an attractive acquisition prospect as a wave of big mergers continues to roll through the industry. Or it could be the opposite. Now, given the company's depressed share price and remaining CEO Adam Kaczynski's past insistence that the company is not for sale, which he reinforced with the talk of its complete independence in the strategy video, it seems most likely that CD Projekt is actually trying to bolster its value and rally its shareholders against the temptation of taking a quick buck from some prospective buyer. Stick with the company, its leaders are saying, and a bright empire-building future awaits. Well, it is a compelling vision. Now CD Projekt just needs to deliver it. Well, that was an absolutely fantastic piece over there at Polygon by Ollie Welsh. I'm going to put a link down below in the description or the show notes, so definitely go over to Polygon and show them some love. Well, some really, really exciting announcements there, but next up, let's have a look at the all-platform charts.
Well, number 10 this week, we've got Pokemon Legends Arceus at one place from last week's number 9. And number 9 this week, up two places from last week's number 7, it's Animal Crossing New Horizons. And number 8 this week, down three places from last week's number 5, it's Grand Theft Auto 5. And at number 7, down one place from last week's number 6, it's Minecraft. At number 6, up two places from last week's number 8, it's Horizon Forbidden West. And at number 5, down one place from last week's number 4, it's Nintendo Switch Sports. At number 4, down two places from last week's number 2, it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. And at number 3, up seven places from last week's number 10, it's Lego Star Wars The Skywalker Saga. At number 2, it's Splatoon 3, down one place from last week's number 1, at New Inn at number 1, it's FIFA 23. Well, that is it for now for the all-platform charts, and congrats to the FIFA team. And this is the last FIFA game in its current iteration from Electronic Arts. So congrats to the team for the number one. Well, that is it for the charts for the moment. But next up, I've been feeling the burn a little bit with Destiny 2 recently. I know I'm not the only one in the community feeling a little bit of burnout. So next up, let's have a look at some of the problems with Destiny 2. It's about that time of year, you know, we're mid-expansion and plenty of players are feeling burned out in the Destiny 2 community. Rather than one huge problem, there's a lot of little things building up and players are just putting down Destiny 2 and having a break. Well today, I want to have a look at some of the top problems in Destiny 2 right now and open it up to you, the community, as they say, as a problem shared is a problem halved. Well, let's dive right into those problems. So first of all, we've got weapon crafting. I didn't really like weapon crafting from the beginning, and it's only really gotten worse over time. Feels like it goes against the core principles of a looter shooter. It's not as drastic as Destiny 2 Year 1, where everything had the same role, but it does take some of the fun out of the weapon chase for me. You know, issues have surfaced this season with the difficulty of getting seasonal weapon red borders. You know, the idea is you have to unlock the pattern of a weapon before you craft it, meaning you have to collect 325 red borders of the weapon, level them up and extract the deep sight resonance out of them get the pattern and then craft the weapon. So once you've crafted a weapon, you can then level it up to unlock new and advanced perks. You know, one of the big issues this season has been the inability to get red border versions of the seasonal weapons, but Bungie did identify a bug. They fixed it, but only six weeks into the season, which is about a third of the way through the season of plunder. Crafted weapons also make adept raid weapons nearly redundant. Given that crafted raid weapons with enhanced perks can outperform adept raid weapons, devaluing master raids and undermining adept raid weapons. You know, I don't know if tweaking or fixing the system is really going to fix the problem for me. I'm under the impression that Bungie implemented this feature as an alternative to the randomness of weapon drops. You know, perhaps I'm just conditioned to appreciate the RNG nature of the loot grind, but personally, I wouldn't be sad if weapon crafting quietly went away. Well, next up, we've got seasonal model burnout. So the seasonal model grind is starting to feel like it's getting old for me. I don't really like the repetitive seasonal features, so here are a few of them as examples. So the vendor in the helm with the upgradable grid, the three to six player matchmade activity, we've got the artifact, you know, reprised weapons, especially the reprised Destiny 2 weapons. You know, it really, really is annoying. Seasonal model is starting to creak, but this is most likely because we've been doing this since Shadowkeep and the Season of Dawn. There's many things I do like about Seasons, though the commitment to add a dungeon or a raid per season, the weekly story drop and the occasional cutscene, 
and seasonal events, even they have gotten a lot better. You know, I don't have the answers as to what Bungie could do to fix this one, but the current pattern of the content we're in could do with a massive shakeup. Well, next up, we've got SBMM in control. So the SBMM experiments in control this season have had a negative effect on the top players in Crucible. So Control, which is supposed to be a game mode where you can quickly jump in and get a few casual games of PvP in, has become one of the most sweatiest PvP playlists in the game, more so than Trials Versiris, which just doesn't seem right. You know, PvP needs a lot of love, and it's great that Bungie is experimenting, but this SBMM experiment in Control doesn't appear to be going well at all. Now, one of the major flaws is that people are quitting matches and they're not being able to backfill quickly enough, leaving teams without players and then getting steamrolled. So back in 2020, we had a mass exodus from the game due to stasis, and the hardcore PvP community are just feeling battered and bruised once again. Well, next up, I want to talk about the core playlists a little bit. So the core playlists in Destiny 2 need some love. I'm talking about Vanguard Ops or Strikes, Crucible and Gambit. So while the seasonal model is getting stale, at least it's varied. But more often than not, you have to go into the core playlist and grind out some currency. The core playlists for Destiny 2 have largely stayed the same since 2017, or content has been cut due to sunsetting with Beyond Light. For example, Strikes, Crucible Maps, Gambit Maps, they've all been removed, leaving the core playlist pretty repetitive. Some improvements have been made recently with Streaks. Yeah, that is a good feature. Weapons getting more perks as you level up your vendor. However, we need more content in these playlists. Battlegrounds were added to Vanguard Ops, which was a good move, but we just simply need more strikes. We've got a wealth of Destiny 1 strikes to call upon, but even better than that would be new strikes on Europa or Sabathun's Throne World or the Dreaming City. You know, when we get a new expansion, it'd be great to get more than two strikes, and in Beyond Light, we only got one. Strikes could also be harder and have strike modifiers, much like we had during Guardian Games this year, and hopefully that gets rolled out in the future. The legendary campaign was a great success with the Witch Queen, and it'd be great to see all new strikes from this point onwards get a legendary mode to go with it. Crucible, on the other hand, needs a lot of work. New maps, new modes, just as a starting point. You know, experimenting in Trials of Osiris seemed fairly successful, and the transparent data you know, from that exercise was great. I love reading through all that data in the TWAB after they did that experiment, and you know, hopefully we can see more of that. Apparently, there's a competitive playlist rework coming in Season 19. That's next season, coming out in December, but we haven't heard any details of that just yet. Gambit already feels like it's been put to one side. We've got so few maps now, so returning our old maps would be a great start, but also the return of ideas from Gambit Prime. But honestly, it feels like Bungie have tried to breathe new life into Gambit so many times, perhaps it's just time to cut and run with this game mode. Well, next up, we've got getting stasis. So the grind to get stasis now feels more unnecessary than ever since the rest of the subclass 3.0 reworks. To get stasis, you have to complete the campaign, which is fine given it's tied to Beyond Light. Then you have to complete the Born into Darkness quest steps 1 to 4, which takes multiple hours. Thankfully, aspects 3 and 4 don't take very long, given they were seasonal additions. It's a simple public event style encounter. And then you've got a heroic simulation. The Fragments, on the other hand, are another story where you can only hold two quests at the same time and grind them out in the playlist of your choice. These take multiple hours, and if you want to unlock stasis across all three characters, it's going to take tens of hours to do so. 
you know, Bungie does appear to have learned from this by simply giving you access to Void Arc and Solar in their 3.0 rework. You know, Stasis is really, really good fun once you get stuck into it, but it's locked behind hours and hours of grind. And I'd love to see Bungie just unlock it all, give it all away for free, and have it made available through purchases either from the Exo Stranger on Europa or Ikora Ray in the Tower. Finally, I want to touch on the lack of communication from Bungie. So up until this week, Bungie have been very, very quiet, you know, almost too quiet. So recently, this week at Bungie updates have been very light and detailed, mainly focusing on their player support, community artwork, prime gaming updates, all that kind of thing. You know, there's likely a good reason for this pullback in communication, and that is related to the behaviour of the Destiny community. So Bungie staff members have received threats. Some of this was a result of their Heroes Welcome campaign, with Bungie staff receiving horrific death threats and threats of violence, with someone sending a pizza delivered to their home in a not-so-subtle threat of, I know where you live. You know, Bungie developers have also faced threats and insults, which led to one developer quitting Twitter because they insisted Titans would never get back Twilight Garrison, a popular exotic chest armor that allowed quick in-air movement from Destiny 1. You know, I certainly don't condone this type of behavior or language directed at Bungie staff. We should be thanking them for creating this world and this game that we love and play so much, not threatening them. So this lack of communication did all change this week with a return to form this week at Bungie Update with a massive weapons breakdown and Q&A. It could be the last few weeks, heads have just been down and Bungie have been in focus mode. However, I really, really hope that Bungie keeps the communication open and flowing and I hope the Destiny community can be respectful when it's providing feedback to Bungie. At the end of the day, there's people trying to do the best they can, and insulting them and threatening them, well, that is just not going to help anyone at all. Well, I've been highlighting some of the problems here in Destiny 2 today, but that's not to say it's terminal and the game is dying. Quite the opposite, it's doing great. But I reckon there's a few things that Bungie need to do to address to make it even better. So there's plenty of things in the game which feel great right now, including story content, sandbox balancing, raid variety, perk design, and the light subclass 3.0 rework. All of these are great examples of Bungie doing their best work. Well, that is it for this look at the top problems that Bungie need to solve with Destiny 2 right now. But next up, let's dive into something completely different. I'm going to dive into a point-and-click adventure. I know everyone has been playing the Return to Monkey Island recently. Personally, can't wait to jump into that and play that myself but I've been playing a different game. This one is the latest from Wadget Eye Games. This one is the excavation of Hobbs Barrow. The excavation of Hobbs Barrow is a gothic narrative adventure game set in the small northern town of Bewley. Wary of outsiders and damp with rain, this Victorian town is the perfect setting for this excavation mystery and adventure where we follow the exploits of Thomasina Bateman trying to solve the mystery of Hobbs Barrow. It's a gripping story and it really ramps up the tension like the turning of a screw. So if you like your horror with a pixel art style and a bunch of conversation and puzzles, well this one could be the game for you. The Excavation of Hobbs Barrow is a point-and-click adventure game developed by Cloak & Dagger Games. Published by Wagi Games, it's a folk horror tale set in rural Victorian England and focuses on the story of Thomasina Bateman, who's been called up to a small northern town called Bewley by the elusive Leonard Shoulder. Thomasina is a barrow digger, 
excavating ancient burial sites and looking for lost relics of the past, well, Leonard contacted Thomasina by letter, inviting her to Bewley to conduct an excavation of Hobbs Barrow. However, when she gets to Bewley, no one in the town is willing to help, and there's whispers of danger when it comes to Hobbs Barrow. Leonard Shoulder, the man who invited Miss Bateman to Bewley, well, he's nowhere to be found, and it turns out that Hobbs Barrow isn't even on Mr Shoulder's land. Well, Bewley is small, and the townsfolk are suspicious of any outsiders, especially Cyril, who stands watch for any newcomers who get off the train. Bewley itself is small, and there's a pub called the Plough and Furrow, where Thomasina has set up temporary residence for the duration of her expected excavation, plus you've got a local blacksmith, a rather grand church, and the town is looked over by Lord Panswick. He's a private man, and the townsfolk are very wary of going near his manor. Well, Thomasina has ventured ahead of her assistant, who's due in Bewley the next day with her excavation equipment, so she sets off about town trying to find Leonard's shoulder, who's promised her more details about Hobbs Barrow. Well, unfortunately, Thomasina can't find Leonard anywhere, and when questioning the townsfolk, no one appears to have seen him for a long time. Leonard lives out there on the moors and she checks out his house with a local vicar, but again, we can't find Leonard anywhere, so Thomasina attempts to solve the mysteries of Hobbs Barrow by herself. Well, this one is a classic point-and-click adventure game. It's got great characters, a really interesting story, and it managed to hook me very, very quickly. Plus, it's got great pixel art graphics. So if you're familiar with other point-and-click adventure games from the 90s, or have played any other Wedge Eye games' recent releases like Unavowed or Strangeland, then you're going to be familiar with this style. So one of the nice features here is you often get close-ups of characters' faces, which are very detailed and often harrowing illustrations of those characters. Well, the excavation of Hobbs Barrow is a gothic horror, one that ratchets up the tension as you play. The music, the supporting cast, the environments all add to this slowly rising tension, and it really, really is a great experience. The game is split into various days. We've got a set number of tasks to do per day. And when you move along to the next day, the characters reset themselves in new configurations, new locations, and new conversations to keep the game moving and mixing things up nicely. So this is a game all about talking to the characters, getting to know them, cross-referencing details from one character to another, and uncovering new dialogue choices. There's various items to collect and store in your inventory, which can then be used to help solve puzzles or trade with various characters to help you move on to the next step. I would say the puzzles are about the right amount of difficult, not too easy, not too hard, which is a tricky balance to get right in these games. There was only one occasion when I found myself getting stuck. I couldn't figure out how to get my equipment out of the storeroom. It was being guarded by a very chatty man. You know, you'd have to invite him to the pub and he'd go on and on without letting you get a word in edgeways, finally to finish up his drink and head back to guard the storeroom. I won't give away the solution, but when the penny dropped, it was a very satisfying puzzle and also had a trace of humour too. It's not largely a funny game. It's not slapstick like Day of the Tentacle would be, for example. However, there are funny little moments. Overall, I'd say the main theme of the game is tension and mystery. You know, why was Thomasina invited to Bewley by Leonard Shoulder? Where has Leonard gone? Plus, why are all the townsfolk scared of Hobbs Barrow? Well, throughout the story, there are flashback moments which really add to the character development of Thomasina. She isn't very close to her mother. She idolised her father. 
You know, he had a mysterious accident one day when she was a child. He's bedridden, unable to communicate or move. Her father was also into excavations and taught Thomasina much of what he knew about the practice, hiding treasure in the garden for her to find. Well, her mother blames her for what happened to her father, and Thomasina carries that weight around with her. The UI in the game is really nice and clean, so in the normal state you've got hardly any UI on the screen at all. It's simple, left and right clicks, plus you've got a hidden menu at the top of the screen, and that appears when you hover over it. Once you leave the plough and furrow on the first morning, you're getting access to a fast travel map, which is a nice time saver. You've also got a neat feature where you can hold down the spacebar on every screen to highlight the interactive objects. Most of the time this isn't really an issue, although sometimes objects can blend into the background, so the highlight feature does come in handy. You can also head back to the pub, the plough and furrow to find different characters there throughout the day, who may or may not be able to provide clues to the next step. Now, If you're stuck on what to do, you can check your to-do list, which will provide you with a high-level direction on what to do. It's not going to tell you specifically where to go or who to speak to, but it's going to give you hints in broad strokes, and for me, that was really enough to progress. Overall, the excavation of Hobbs Barrow is a great package. It's got some modern features implemented on top of the classic point-and-click adventure game mechanics, and the tension just keeps ramping up, coaxing you to come back for more in a mildly uneasy way, like someone at a carnival might ask you for another round at the shooting range. Well, 2022 has been a good year for adventure games like this with the recent release of Return to Monkey Island, and if you're in the mood for more great adventuring, I don't really think you can go wrong with the excavation of Hobbs Barrow. So if you haven't played this type of game before, but you like gothic horror, again, it's going to be a recommendation from me. Well, the game was developed by Cloak & Dagger Games. It was published by Wadget Eye Games. It's coming out on the PC, and the release date is the 28th of September, 2022. And also, I'd like to thank the publisher for providing a review copy of the game. Well, thank you very much, and all of you out there, I really hope you enjoy the excavation of Hobbs Barrow. Well, that was my review there of the excavation of Hobbs Barrow. Really, really exciting stuff. Really creepy game. And it's a perfect game for October as you get into the Halloween spirit. Well, that is it for my review of the excavation of Hobbs Barrow. But next up, let's have a look at what we've got coming out in the next few weeks. Okay, so coming soon, first of all, on October the 11th, we've got Asterigos, The Curse of the Stars, PS5, PS4 and PC. We've got Evil, that's on Xbox Series S and X, Xbox One and PC. In Sound Mind, that is coming to Nintendo Switch. Then we've got No More Heroes 3, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One and PC. Then on October the 12th, we've got Lego Brick Tales, that's PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. On the 13th, we've got Fueled Up. That's PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, and PC. We've got the Eternal Cylinder. That's PS5, Xbox Series S and X. That's on October the 13th. Also on the 13th, the last Aura Crew. That's the PS5, Xbox Series S and X, and PC. We've got Triangle Strategy. That one is coming out on PC. And that is the final one to come out on October the 13th. Next up, we got October the 14th, and again, loads of games on October the 14th. Dragon Ball The Breakers, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. NHL 23, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, and Xbox One. 
We've got Nickelodeon Kart Racers 3, Slime Speedway, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. We've got PGA Tour 2K23, that's PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One and PC. Next up we've got Scorn, that one is coming out on the Xbox Series S and X, Xbox One and PC, also on the 14th. Then moving on to the 18th, so we've got a Plague Tale Requiem. PS5, Xbox Series S and X, Switch, and PC. We've got Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed. That's coming out on PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Also on the 18th, Them's Fighting Herds. PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, and Switch. And then on the 19th, we've got Uncharted Legacy of Thieves Collection. That's coming to the PC. On the 20th of October, we've got Batora Lost Heaven. PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. We've got Mario plus Rabid Spark of Hope. That's coming to Nintendo Switch on October the 20th. And then also on the 20th, we've got Norco coming to PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, and Xbox One. We've got Second Extinction. That's coming to Xbox Series S and X, Xbox One, and PC. Also on the 20th. And the Jackbox Party Pack 9. Also coming on the 20th, PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One, Switch, PC, iOS, and also Android. So that is pretty much a full house. Then we've got Vampire Survivors. I think that's the 1.0 release. That's coming out on PC. Haven't been in early access nearly all year. Probably going to be the game of the year. Then we've got Gotham Knights. That's PS5, Xbox Series S and X and PC. Coming on October the 21st. Also on the 21st, New Tales from the Borderlands. PS5, Xbox Series S and X, PS4, Xbox One and PC. Finally, Persona 5 Royale. PS5, Xbox Series S and X, Xbox One, Switch. And finally coming out on the PC. Well, that is about it for this week's episode, and if you want to get involved in the show, get in contact through patreon.com forward slash this week in video games or check out the latest on the website. Yeah, thank you so much for watching or for listening, and for more This Week in Video Games content like this. You can like, subscribe on YouTube, and also share with a friend. Or you can check me out on Twitter at TWIVG Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast or found it useful, liking and sharing it would really help me out. Otherwise, you can check out the other podcasts in the feed, well, thanks again, and I'll see you soon.